Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Well, hello and welcome to the Uncorking Story podcast. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I have a special co-host with me. Joining me today is Laura Nozika. Say hi, Laura. Hello, Mike. Happy to be oh, uncorking with you today. Well, I'm happy to uncork with you, as always, Laura. Uh, and joining us today is the one and only Cindy Gallup. Now, Cindy has been called the Michael Bay of business because, well, she likes to blow things up. And her background includes over 30 years in brand building, marketing, and advertising. She started the U.S. office of ad agency Bartle Bogle and Hegarty, BBH. I always say BBH. I always get the names uh, mixed up in New York and 1998 and in 2003 was named advertising woman of the year citing all of our accomplishments right now would take longer than we have for this episode so we'll simply just welcome cindy to the program welcome to the program cindy thank you mike i'm thrilled to be here cindy i always say you know this this podcast is about the stories behind the stories so i'm just curious as to where your story begins well speaking literally my story begins on February 1, 1960, which is when I came into the world. I'm 62 years old, I'm happy to say. I tell everyone how old I am as often as possible. Um, but I guess um, my story certainly, in terms of what I'm focused on today, really began now about 14 or 15 years ago um, with a realization that came to me through direct personal experience which um, was born out of the fact that I date younger men. And 14, 15 years ago, began realizing through dating younger men that when we don't talk openly and honestly about sex in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. And so <coughs> I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa. you know. Um, I know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 14, 15 years ago, nobody was talking about this, nobody was writing about it. Um, but in isolation, as a naturally action-oriented person, I went, I'm gonna do something about this. So um, 13 years ago, um, I put up on no money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just words. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world, here's what really happens in the real world. And I launched Make Love Not Porn 
with a talk at the TED conference back in 2009, and that completely changed the course of my life. So, you know, um, I would say that that's where my story starts. Interesting. Very interesting. Laura, what do you think of that name, Make Love Not Porn? I'm thinking more about the fact that she dates younger men. <laughs> so I'm I'm 51 and I haven't dabbled in younger men yet because I always liked the uh, the older guys. But uh, I think I like your idea, um, Cindy. But Make Love about Not Porn. Fabulous. That's how I found you. Just respond on that. I mean, a couple of things that um, our, our listeners should know as well. The first is that um, I am somebody who has never wanted married. I have never wanted children. I adore being single. I cannot wait to die alone. And so I date younger men casually and recreationally for sex. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm deliberately very public about all of that because we don't have enough role models in our society for women and for men, by the way, that demonstrate you can live your life very differently to the way that society expects you to and still be amazingly happy. And I'm one of the happiest people I know. And then, and then the second thing I would say is, because this is like Make Love Not Porn, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. So dating younger men happened by accident in the sense that um, back when I was running BBH New York, and this would be, gosh, 22 years ago, we were asked to pitch for an online dating brand. And, you know, in the advertising industry, when you pitch for a client's business, you have to experience the client's product and the entire competitive landscape. And so we all had to online date. And this was 22 years ago, and none of us on the agency pitch team ever had, because it wasn't a thing back then. And the rest of my team were all, you know, married, living with somebody, dating. They all went online as fake personas. You know, I thought, I've got to do this for business reasons. Why not do it for real? Let's find out what this whole online dating thing is all about. And so I posted my profile across a whole bunch of sites, was very honest about everything, including my age. Much to my surprise, I got an avalanche of responses, and the majority of those were from younger men. And I hadn't thought about this as a dating strategy, but I went, hmm, works for me. And so that's what I've been doing very happily ever since, but it all happened by accident. You know, I wanna, I wanna just reflect on that for a moment because it, it brings up something that I'm, I'm passionate about. I don't wanna speak for Laura, but I'm guessing she is too, because you know we have day jobs in the same industry. Um, there is something to be said about having empathy for who you're creating for. So if you're creating for, you know, a, a, a cruise line, you know, you, you, it's probably a good idea for you to have gone on a cruise before. Um, and and you know, I think you're echoing a similar sentiment here. You know, if you haven't online dated before, how are you possibly going to create something for for an online dating brand? And Laura and I, you know, we both, you know, try and give clients in, in the market research industry anyway, the ability to have build empathy for um, for consumers or it's some kind of end customer by giving them experiences into their lives, not just by testing A versus B, but by really helping them step into to consumer shoes. So I'm curious as to your, your um, opinions on, you know, uh, how important it is to, to, to build empathy for the people you're creating for. Oh, I think, um, I think it's incredibly important. And therefore, Mike, I'm very glad you brought up that point because 
it speaks to something that I've been saying to our industry for years, which is, you know, it's not actually about creating empathy. It's about empathy that should be already there. And what I mean by that is the same thing I mean when I say, as I've been saying for years, don't talk diversity. Don't create inspirational, compelling advertising campaigns about diversity. Don't do PR stunts about diversity. Just fucking be diverse. So when you have a basically diverse talent, female, black, of color, LGBTQ, disabled talent, creating the ads, approving the ads, directing the ads, shooting the ads, running the ads, you don't even have to think about diversity because they just are. And so the, the ultimate form of empathy is to, is to have your team reflect your audience. And by the way, that is especially true given that we are in right now Women's History Month and tomorrow is International Women's Day. I know that this interview will run you know, at, at a later date, but it's especially true because the primary target of advertising is women because we are the primary purchasers of everything and the primary influencers of purchase of everything, even in categories historically deemed to be more male, you know, um, more women um, influence car purchases, more women than men buy new cars. Um, and so it's very ironic that advertising is male dominated. The way you really connect with women is by having women creating, approving, producing, directing, and shooting the ads. And so that's, that's how, you, you're absolutely right about the importance of empathy. That's how you have empathy because your team knows your audience. Excellent point. Laura, I think you, you, you might have a question, I'm thinking, um, uh, thinking about how uh, single women are portrayed in, in media. I do. Um, Mike, you're a little outrun here with girl power today, I think, but that's okay. Mike, I think Mike likes that anyway, so it's all good. Uh, so, Cindy, I, I refer to myself as a swank, and a swank is a single woman and no kids, and that's, that's me. Um, yeah, thumbs up to that. As far as women in this, I don't even know that it's a niche niche market anymore but how do you how do you look at that because i have a small group of women who are swanks or swankies as i like to call them and when people hear about my group we're kind of looked at as this pathetic group of like old hags that hate men and none of that's true at all so you know what do you what do you say to women who are um who are kind of fighting that that stigma well, you know, what you talk about, Laura, is precisely why, as I said earlier, I'm deliberately very public about the way that I like to live my life. Because, you know, I still get, um, when I say that I am blissfully child-free, I still get one of two reactions. You know, either it's pity. Oh, the poor dear thing never mm. met a man who wanted to marry her. Which, by the way, is not exactly. True. Had I wanted to be married, yeah. I could have been. I absolutely had men who wanted to marry me. I did not want to get married. And then the second reaction is horror. <gasps> oh my God! 
a freak of nature, a woman who doesn't want children. How unnatural. You know, and, and the sad fact is that that is the result of centuries of patriarchy. And, you know, um, what, what women need and what men need, as I said, is many more role models um, that demonstrate that there are different lives you can live. Because too many people are living lives they don't really want to live. And they're living them because of what their parents want and think, what all their friends are doing at the same time, you know, what popular culture tells them they should want. And I really want people to take a long, hard look into themselves and ask what would really make me happy. And, you know, I, I had a really, um, to me, surprising demonstration of the power of this um, a couple of months back because... Um, so, so I did a video interview for a wonderful series called Style Like You, which is run by a mother and daughter team, Elisa and Lily. And what they do is they, um, they have an interview series called What's Underneath, where they interview people, where you sit on a stool and you basically take an item of clothing off with each question you answer. The idea being that you literally, physically and metaphorically strip down to what's underneath. And so they invited me to participate in, you know, a part of this series that is called Defying Ageism. So it's asking older women to, to do this. And so I took all my clothes off, happily, at the age of 62, while speaking to, you know, my particular take on life and love and all of that. And honestly, I was gobsmacked at the extraordinarily positive response that received. Um, I went viral on TikTok, and by the way, I'm not on TikTok, but, but they did a little, <laughs> little clip from my interview, and there were all these Gen Zers, you know, like celebrating what I'd said and making their own, you know, TikTok videos using my voiceover. And, you know, an astonishing response on YouTube um, where the video is posted. And actually, I think it was summed up by a woman's comment on Instagram, which really moved me where she responded to the video on Instagram and she said, imagine if we had grown up seeing and hearing women talk and live like this, how very different our lives would be today. And so, you know, what I would say to you um, and your swank friends, and obviously I fully endorse <laughs> this lifestyle choice, you know, absolutely celebrate it to the skies and be public about it because everybody needs us as role models. And by the way, men also need us as role models as well. You cannot be what you cannot see applies as much to men as it does to women when men don't have female role models. And there are as many men who got married when they didn't want to, had children when they shouldn't have, you know. And, and, and by the way, that is the last taboo for women. There are many mothers out there who wish they hadn't had children. Guaranteed, there are many fathers out there who wish they hadn't had children, but it's especially anathema for women to give voice to that in any way at all. And so, you know, the, the more of us speaking up about, you know, really think about these life choices, they are not the automatic ones that you should be making as a woman. And think about how much happier you could be living differently. And I think we'd see, you know, a lot more happy people in the world. Yeah, really is about being true to yourself. And um, sometimes it's not fitting the norm or you're Catholic, 
one in the two and you're you're feeling guilty. <laughs> Mike and I are both Catholic <laughs> and we talk about the Catholic guilt. So, you know, there's a lot to do with that well, sometimes too. Well, but. well th th that is exactly what Make Love Not Porn is designed to do because Make Love Not Porn takes the guilt, shame and embarrassment out of sex. And that is why I call Make Love Not Porn a shame changer. Mm. You know, it's I, I'm I'm curious to, to know more of the back history there. So when you when you first started it, Cindy, what 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 pushback? I mean, if any, did you get? And um, you know, what was the initial reaction to make love not porn? Sure. So, so for the benefit of our viewers, because I I left off the saga um, at this point. So uh, as I said, you know, make love not porn was this clunky little porn world versus real world site that I launched um, at TED in February of two thousand nine. I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face, on the TED stage, six times in succession. <laughs> the talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Thousands of people wrote to me from every country in the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out, and I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I now have a personal responsibility. I have to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that will make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. And I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, 13 years ago at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I would have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass just as mainstream and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So thinking big right from the get-go. So what I decided to do was, um, I always emphasize to people that make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst a whole host of benefits, people would then be able to bring a real world mindset to the viewing of what is simply performative produced entertainment. So our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one very simple thing, which is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. And so given this mission, I decided to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area no other social network or platform will allow in order to socialize sex and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So I turned Make Love Not Porn into the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. So we're kind of what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which it sadly doesn't, you know, the way I put it is, if porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the documentary. We are a unique window onto the funny, messy, wonderful, fabulous, beautiful sex we all have in the real world. 
Um, we are socialising sex in order to promote consent, communication, good sexual values and good sexual behaviour. So we're sex education through real-world demonstration, and we call ourselves the social sex revolution. The revolution part is not the sex, it's the social. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, you talk about porn as sex ed, and it, that's just such a scary concept because if, if I think of, you know, the time when I was growing up, right, so when I was first starting to get interested in such matters, it was probably sometime in the 1980s. And, you know, I didn't have a device in my pocket that I could just take out or whip out, as Laura would say, and, and, and just look at something, you know, pornographic. You had to work for finding porn, whether that was, you know, glancing, going to the convenience store and looking at a magazine while the clerk wasn't looking or finding, you know, a tape that might be, you know, in, in your father's bedroom somewhere. Not saying my father had any, just saying if I were to go into his closet and find a briefcase, there might have been some tapes in there. But, you know, you have to, you had to really work for it. Now, I think now I have three 19-year-olds at home. I've got triplets, Cindy. And um, they could easily just bypass all of the work and just see something within, you know, two or three seconds. And the thought that that's teaching them sexual education um, is scary. You know, it's, it's just really scary because, you know, I think we know as adults that porn isn't reality. Um, I don't think, you know, kids who are just starting to, to you know, you know, explore their sexuality really get that message. You know? um, no, and they, well, absolutely, and they absolutely don't, Mike, because, as I said, the issue isn't porn, but that we don't talk openly and honestly about sex in the real world. And so you should absolutely send your triplets to Make Love Not Porn, which is for 18 and over. So that's obviously fine. Um, but also because I can tell you that parents buy their teenage children, 20-something children, subscriptions to Make Love Not Porn because they want them to see what happy, healthy, loving sexual relationships look like. And the reason that's so important is, um, so I designed Make Love Not Porn around my own beliefs and philosophies, one of which is that everything in life starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should, because in bed values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we're actively taught to exercise them. So this is my vision for a world in which I get Make Love Not Porn funded to achieve our mission at scale as the Facebook of social sex, because that is how big we want to be. When we do that, parents will bring their children up openly to have good sexual values and good sexual behavior in exactly the same way that parents currently bring kids up to have good values and behavior in every other area of life, we will therefore cease to bring up rapists. Because the only way that you end rape culture is by inculcating in society and openly talked about, promoted, understood, and very importantly, aspired to gold standard of what constitutes good sexual values and good sexual behavior. When we do that, we also end Me Too, 
we end sexual harassment, abuse, violence, all areas where the perpetrators currently rely on the fact that we do not talk about sex to ensure victims never speak up, never go to authorities, never tell anybody. When we end that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. When we do that, we create a far happier world for everybody, including men. And when we do that, we are one step closer to world peace. I talk about make love not porn as my attempt to bring about world peace, and I'm not joking. And I think the only downside is we run out of storylines for Law and Order SVU. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a well, wonderful you know, thing? Cindy, Mike is already uh, dad of the year, but I think with that subscription, I think oh my might God. really put him over. <laughs> Laura, absolutely. Yeah, he, 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 uh, he's got the fun house as it is so you know i, I don't not? know about the fun house but i i do know that uh you know one half of the parenting equation there might be a little bit more of a sell there for for that but, 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 but I'll, t- I'll tell you also why it is important mike so right now in the era of me too um everybody is quite rightly talking about consent everybody is writing about consent There are lots of thoughtful, nuanced, insightful think pieces uh, out there about consent. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what consent actually looks like in bed. The only way you educate people as to what is great consensual communicative sex, good sexual values and behavior, is by watching people actually having that kind of sex. And Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where you can actually do that. Every one of our videos is an object lesson in consent, communication, good sexual behavior. As I said earlier, we are literally sex education through real-world demonstration. So, Cindy, how do you vet out those couples, then, that are demonstrating that behavior that, that you find ideal for your site? So, um, so first of all, um, our only criteria is that it's consensual and it's real-world sex. But I'm glad you asked that question, Laura, because... We are an utterly unique venture, and I want to respond um, contextualizing what we're doing in the broader tech landscape as a whole, because the young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today are not the primary targets online and offline of harassment, abuse, racism, sexual assault, violence, rape, revenge porn, Therefore, they did not and they do not proactively design for the prevention of any of those things on their platforms. And we see the results around us every single day. Those of us who are most at risk every single day, women, black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. I and my tiny team spent literally years concepting and designing Make Love Not Porn before we ever built it because we knew To invite people to do something they've never done before, socially share their real world sex, we had to think through every possible ramification of that to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. As a result, not only do we operate unlike anybody else in the adult sphere, we operate unlike anybody else on the internet, period. And that's because I designed Make Love Not Porn through the female lens around what everybody else should have, nobody else did, human curation. There is no self-publishing of anything on Make Love Not Porn. Our curators watch every single frame of every single video submitted from beginning to end before we approve or reject and we publish it. Nobody else does that. We review every single post on every member profile 
photos, text, illustration before we approve or reject and we publish it. Nobody else does that. We review every single comment on every single video before we approve and publish them. Nobody else does that. We can vouch for every single piece of content on our platform, and that is why Make Love Not Porn is the safest place on the internet. Um, and by the way, Laura, just to the terminology you used, I designed Make Love Not Porn to be fully diverse and inclusive. And so mm -hmm. we, have, we have many coupled videos, but we also have many solo videos, masturbation videos from men, women, trans, non-binary individuals. We have obviously threesome videos, polyamorous videos. You know, we exist to celebrate the full, glorious, diverse and inclusive spectrum of human sexuality in a space that, as I said, is completely and totally safe and trustworthy. And also, by the way, you can, if you want to, be anonymous in your videos. It's fine to wear masks, faces in shadow, out of frame. And the moment you want your videos gone, we'll take them down immediately. No process, no application form, no waiting. You email us. Um, you know, you, you could literally, we might publish your video one day. You're free to change your mind overnight. We'll take it down next morning. Yeah, so I found you, Cindy, on LinkedIn, actually. And your posts are pretty pretty edgy, I would say. I would characterize them in a good way. And I think I did see, I think you did post something about your um, clothing removal photo op or whatever that was. Um, and LinkedIn specifically, in my opinion, is a really, really tight kind of, you know, very conservative, boring sometimes uh, social media outlet. And they're pretty particular of what they like to to have you post. I mean, I've read what their criteria looks like, what would be helpful uh, posting, help a friend find a job, you know, what's important in the world. And your stuff is pretty, you know, again, pretty, pretty edgy. How do you break through, you know, the comments and, you know, kind of a very traditional blah business kind of platform um, with what you're doing? Um, so first of all, um, Laura, um in response to that, I get a huge amount of fan mail on LinkedIn from women and men telling me how much they enjoy my posts and how much they enjoy the fact that I am bringing the full me to LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, I get, um, and what, what is rather sad is that I get a lot of messages from women and men saying, you know, I would love to share this post. I would love to comment on it, to tell you how much I appreciate it. I daren't because of the corporate eye on me. So that's a huge shame. I'll tell you also that I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, uh, this may no longer be the case because I, I stopped monitoring it when, when the comment thread got too long, but I posted the video of my Starlight You interview where I take all my clothes off um, on LinkedIn and there was not a single negative comment in the very long comment thread under it. It was viewed mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't, I haven't gone back and looked at it recently, but it was viewed massive amount of times. It got so many likes and a stream of appreciative comments from women and men. And, and you will know that have, to have nothing but positive comments in a very long thread on LinkedIn is extraordinary. Um, to, um, <laughs> now, I, I want to just frame what I do there um, uh, in the context of something that, that I've also talked about a lot um, to our industry, because you know, people make the mistake, especially, by the way, in B2B communications and marketing and advertising, people make the mistake of thinking that 
you know, anything that involves business has to be corporate. And corporate translates into rational and boring, okay? And I always make the point that business is the most emotional area I can think of because we are human beings first and foremost and business people are human beings as well. And the brands that really break through in a B2B context are the ones that understand that and create really emotionally engaging and compelling um, marketing and communications that are empathetic to, you know, the human being within the business person. And, you know, my presence on LinkedIn demonstrates that because, as I said, I hear all the time from people who message me just to tell me how enormously they appreciate and enjoy everything I post on LinkedIn. And as I say, you know, I would urge brands to extrapolate from that the fact that you shouldn't be slipping into oiled corporate grooves when you are looking to communicate to a professional audience in a professional context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, even even if we're thinking with our business hats on, we're still people. We still have emotions and we still, you know, I don't think anyone wants to be talked to all that all that clinically. That um, was talking to somebody recently who's who uh, was uh, um, writing a biography, and she said I had to throw away my first draft because it was just too boring. And even though she was investigating somebody's Ooh. life, you know, somebody of, of note, you know, she wanted to still make it more um, more of a story. So she actually wound up thinking more like a, a, a fiction writer. Ooh. Um, and she even mentions, you know, exploring, um, you know, exploring other types of writing, including erotic writing, um, just to really bring out more, more of a human element into this person who, whose life that she's, she was chronicling it was pretty, pretty fascinating. But I, Cindy, actually, Laurie and I have a question for you. Um, I mean, if it, not as if we didn't have any other questions for you before, <laughs> but we were on, we were on your website, and we were looking at your bio page, and we saw. Um, your your a painting of you, and we had a question about one element in the painting. Um, it should be coming up on screen right now. So this is the painting, and we were curious about what what was going on right here. What does this represent? Because Laura and I, we both had some hypotheses around this, but but we, we we're trying to figure out exactly what the story is right here. So can you can you share that sure, with us? Yeah. So for the benefit of our listeners, um, what we're talking about here is a portrait of me that I commissioned um, back in, gosh, um, I mean, 20 years ago, um, from one of my favorite artists, who is an artist called Paul Richard, who lives and works here in New York. And I'm a big fan of his work and, and bought quite a bit of it in his early days. And I'd always wanted a portrait of myself, and I love Paul's painting style. And so I commissioned him to paint me. Um, and by the way, the portrait is gigantic. That was not my intention. He decided to make it that large. I was quite shocked when he unveiled it. I thought it was going to be a lot smaller. But, um, but I asked him to paint me with one of my favorite objects, which sits on the coffee table in my apartment. And what this object is, is a stuffed um, mongoose and cobra um, that had been stuffed in, in a death battle. And I found this in a street market in Penang, Malaysia, when my parents lived there in retirement many years ago. Um, This cost the princely sum of 20 bucks. Um, And I absolutely love it because the taxidermist 
just, you know, caught these two animals in this wonderful sculptural pose. Um, it's basically Ricky Ticky Tavi, for anyone who's familiar with Rudyard Kipling's um, Just So Stories and, and, and the tale of Ricky Ticky Tavi, the mongoose who, you know, beat um, the cobra in, in, in battle. And because it's one of my favorite objects, um, I asked Paul Richard to paint my portrait with, with, with uh, the mongoose and the cobra. Um, a, a bit like those, you know, Elizabethan paintings or Ren Renaissance paintings where people have symbolic objects painted with them. And there really isn't um, any symbolism from my side other than that I really love it. And just, I, I just thought it'd be fun to have it, have it in my portrait. I think we were wondering how you identify with those creatures um, in one way or not. Um, I guess um, you could say I identify with the mongoose because, and, and this, this is going back to a question you asked earlier, Mike. I can tell you that in 13 years of working on Make Love Not Porn, um, I have had a universally positive response to it from all around the world. As a unique venture, we have a unique capability. We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else does. And we hear every day from our community how much we've transformed their lives through you know, making them feel able to be more open and unashamed around sex. The only battles I've had to fight, and, and I shouldn't say only because these are massive battles, are with the business, tech, and financial worlds. And what I mean by that is, you know, I and my team fight a battle every day to keep Make Love Not Porn alive and grow it because every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup gets to take for granted, we can't, the small print always says no adult content. And that's all pervasive across, you know, getting funded, getting banked, putting payments in place, tech services, everything is a battle. And so I identify with the mongoose because I'm fighting the cobra every bloody day, but I'm determined to win. Well, that, that puts an end to that mystery, Laura. Heard it firsthand from the <laughs> lady herself. So, Cindy, we, we do have a few questions for you that are, uh, we, we try and ask every guest just to try and see if we could find um, some, some themes across all the people we have the, uh, we have the uh, pleasure of interviewing. Uh, first up, simple one, perhaps, uh, although sometimes authors have a harder time with this. Favorite movie of all time, what is it? Gosh, that's a really tricky one because, you know, there are, um, I, have, I, have, I have quite a few that fall into the favorite bucket. I think um, um, if, I, if, if I were going to take one out of my personal top 10 list, um, I think I would probably have to say Thelma and Louise. And I would have to say that because obviously that's a very old movie. You know, it came out, you know, way back in, gosh, um, the late 80s. Um, but, you know, I, I would say it's my favorite, again, given that we are talking in Women's History Month with International Women's Day tomorrow. Um, you know, that was an extraordinary anthem of female empowerment. Um, again, all those years ago when it was even more extraordinary and, you, you know, um, it was a wonderful story of two, you know, very messy, complicated, you know, fully rounded female characters. It was a story of female friendship. It was a story of smashing the patriarchy. And it was a story of 
absolutely determining, determining in that extraordinary ending that they would not live within the patriarchal trap any longer. And, and so it's incredibly inspirational. And as I say, I mean, I have, I have a number of, you know, movies that are, are my favorites, but, but I'm gonna cite that one um, for today. So that's uh, Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, right? And and Brad Pitt and, in yeah. Don't forget oh, Brad what? Pitt. Come on. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you mentioned <laughs> he was the you mentioned it's in <laughs> he was the cowboy of the show. Gotta have gotta 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 give him a nod. Well, you know, you mentioned it's an old movie. Although I, I actually did see a real old movie yesterday in our in our one of our local cinemas. We had uh, they were playing Casablanca oh, wow. yeah. yesterday. Yeah, well, that's a really and, old movie. And I, that's a really old movie, so we'll, uh, we'll, uh, well, we'll so, so I think I need to rephrase this question, Laura, because I think having someone think of one favorite movie, difficult, I think that, for the future reference, we're going to say one of your mm-hmm. favorite movies of all time. I think that might be a little bit easier. Um, is there a show that you watched recently that you really enjoyed sh- uh, streaming? Um, again, um, I mean, I've, I've watched several, um, but in the same vein, um, I would say that I'm enormously enjoying streaming Killing Eve. And, mm. you know, and I've been a fan of Killing Eve, you know, from, from you know, episode one of season one. And, and again, um, in similar vein, you know, um, con- conceived by, run by, and written by women with fantastic roles for women. Um, all the main characters are, are female and and demonstrating what happens when you give female crea- creativity the freedom to do whatever the hell it wants. You know, one of the most unique and original um, shows on TV. Um, and, you know, to, I, I bring that up because, you know, that is what I'm currently watching. We're now on season four. But, but I want at the same time, and again, in, in the same vein, to give a huge shout out to a phenomenal show of a couple of years back, which is Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. Because again, um, that is testament to what happens when you give a black woman um, the ability to create a show untrammeled by anything through her own creative lens. And, and you know, both of those shows show you the innovation and disruption that women can deliver when, as, as all too rarely happens, they get the funding behind them and the green light to make whatever the hell they want. You know, Laura and I were kind of hoping you would say inventing Anna because we uh, we both finished we both just finished. We're watching obsessed, and 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 we cannot stop doing our Anna Delphi accents, Laura. We love Anna Delphi so much. It's so Laura, you look so stylish She's with those glasses. So stylish, today. yes. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to watch it. I haven't yet, but I will. Oh, that is that is a it, it is awesome. There, it is awesome. There's a lot to learn from Anna. That's for sure. Uh, question number three, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write, with the intention of writing something? Um, what kind of emotions do you experience during that time? Um, you know, t- to be honest, um, I try and work where I'm going to write um, out in my head first. And so um, I don't really sit down with the blank piece of paper until I've already got a mental idea of what I plan to put on it. So. Um, it doesn't happen for me in in, um, in quite that way, but um, you know, I um, I find that um, I try and write the way I talk. You, you know, because um, I think, and I say that because I think people can sometimes get a bit hung up on literary form, 
and and what I do first and foremost is go how would I say this if I was saying it out loud and that's the quickest way to get it all dumped down and then I can craft it as a piece of writing subsequently and I'm going to throw out one more and then I know Laura's got one that she wants to ask but my final one would be if, if you could write a letter to your younger self um, you know, and mail it to your, and, and then have that younger person read it, obviously. What, what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self, um, you know, based on all the wisdom and knowledge that you've, uh, you have now? Sure. So two things. The first is I would go, don't give a damn what anybody thinks because that is the only way to live your life. And the second thing I would say, and, and this is the one regret of my career. I, I, I don't have many regrets. Um, I have very few actually, but you know, I would say, start working for yourself as soon as possible because I wish I had you know I'm 62 I'm, I'm of the generation where you know you went to university got a good degree got a good job entrepreneurship never even entered into the equation and you know now I work for myself working for oneself is the only way to be and so I would say to my younger self start working for yourself as soon as you possibly can all right Laura? I think my I think Mike and I would agree with that because we we en we enjoy not working for the for the for the man as they say well, yeah <laughs> that's that's true yeah you know but you know just before before I, I, I give you the floor Laura you know it's kind of like make love not porn in the sense that you know we don't do a great job talking to you know our kids about sex and sexuality I think adults we have a hard time talking about it too but we also don't teach our kids about entrepreneurship and the idea that they can work for themselves one day. Um, I think there, there's definitely something that I definitely see a parallel to the, the two big areas that we've been talking about today. Yeah. Uh, Cindy, earlier you mentioned way back when, when you were trying to come up with branding and advertising for, a, I think you said a dating app mm. way back when, <laughs> is that right? Mm. Um, and if you don't have experience, how do you even market it? But, um, uh, I do have experience with dating apps and plenty of nightmare stories there. But where do you think brands are missing the boat when it comes to the single solo market? Because sure, Costco's fun, but if you have a small little apartment, where do you put the stuff? Or, you know, there's people think that being single is fabulous all the time and you know, I always say, well, the garbage still has to get taken out, you know, by it doesn't get taken out by itself, married person who continues to complain about their lives and how bad it is because they have a husband. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, that's just the way it is. But, you know, and then I say, well, you know, that garbage that people that you complain about that your husband take out, I have to take that out too. Um, but there's, there's times where I just really feel like brands are missing the boat with the single target um you know mike and i both do market research and honestly when we look at the the cohorts that we're marketing it's either it's a married single it's male female but there's never anything that's specific to well let's talk to single people so where do you think brands are missing the boat um do, do you know um it's actually not where brands are missing the boat laura this goes right back to um the problem that i highlighted earlier on in our conversation which is that um, it is the leadership who are missing the boat in who they are choosing to hire, promote, value, champion, celebrate, and reward. Because the problem with exactly what you're talking about um, at the moment is 
Um, every brand has at least one, and the large brands have obviously a whole panoply of advertising agencies. And, and, and I'm going to anchor this more, this is also unfortunately the case with white male dominated marketing departments, but I'm going to anchor this, this issue more on the agency side. Because what we have in the advertising industry, as I mentioned earlier, is an industry dominated by white men, especially in the creative departments. You know, um, I've been speaking for the past 10 years at the 3% conference every year. The 3% conference was started by the amazing Kat Gordon because 10 years ago, only 3% of all advertising agency creative directors were women. 97% were men. Um, today, um, it's marginally better. Um, we are now up to, I think it's 23% um, of all advertising agency creative directors are women. That's still not enough. And so what you have are young white male creatives going got to create a scenario for you know this ad to advertise whatever you don't have young single black female creatives or importantly older single black female creatives um, who are in those creative departments with the power to create the ads that would really speak to you and me you know, I mean, don't even get me started on older women in advertising, but mm. also advertising is racist as hell. And so black of color, you know, Hispanic, Asian people are, you know, notable by, by their non-appearance. Non, um, non and so the, the answer to that, um, I go right back to, you know, you end stereotypes in advertising when you have the people who are being stereotyped creating the ads. When you are a young white male creative, it's really easy to default to a heterosexual married couple, you know, because you are dealing in stereotypes, because that's mm -hmm. all you know. Whereas if you are an older black woman creating the ad, boy, oh boy, we'd be represented very differently in that ad. That's the problem. And so it all goes back to, you know, hire, promote, welcome, champion, reward, compensate, and value um, diverse talent. And you'll be amazed at the creative output that you then get. You know, our industry thinks that its glory days are over. Mad Men, Don Draper. Our industry's glory days have not even begun because we have not even begun to see what our industry could be with the talents and skills and creativity of women and people of color. Mm -hmm. Amen, sister. <laughs> Well, I think that's a that's a great point for us to end on. Um, although I do want to give Cindy the opportunity to tell us, you know, if, if people who are listening want to follow you or learn more about you, where can they go, Cindy? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cindy Gallup, um, and also Make Love Not Porn is at Make Love Not Porn on Twitter and Instagram. I'm obviously on LinkedIn. You know, come and find those shocking posts I'm putting up there. Um, They're great. And, and you can also find me on Facebook at Cindy.Gallup. And our Make Love Not Porn Facebook page is MLNPTV. Very good. Cindy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Laura and Mike. Thank you very much. For Thanks, having me on. Cindy.
You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe.